All right, hi everybody. Let's get started. Welcome back. Today we're going to talk about remedies and remedies at the tribunal level, remedies on judicial review, remedies within a statutory appeal. As I've been sort of anticipating, this is a really important part of the course and I'm very glad we're tackling at the outset. And I want to tackle it at the outset for the reason that when your client comes into your office for your first consultation, you know, you want to, to hear the facts from them and you want to be thinking of remedies for them. You know, what could we do together? Where should we go to get the help that you need? And is the best advice that it's simply not available? Uh, you, you don't need a lawsuit right now. There's nothing that we can do. So remedies is something that you want to be thinking about at the outset of any legal disputes you're looking at. And in admin law, it's sort of especially complicated because there are so many different paths that you could go down for a remedy. So our reading was the book chapter two. I think it's a really well done chapter that gives a broad view of remedy, not just from the perspective of you know, what are the things you can get on judicial review, which is the traditional focus in admin law on remedies, but also to think, well, what can you get at the tribunals? Why might tribunals be able to offer different sorts of remedies than you can get in court? These types of questions, I think, are, are well posed by the book and certainly worth thinking about. For Friday, we then have um, three cases to look at, and the excerpts are very short altogether. It's maybe five, 10 pages of reading, um, which is nice. I do hope to have a bit of a balance between you know, a longer chapter and a shorter uh, caseload as a general theme. You know, Not every week, but hopefully it'll usually work out like that. I added one further case, but it's, it's only a few paragraphs to read. Um, a fascinating case about you know, birth mid-air and who's got jurisdiction over this and things like that. A really interesting case. But don't worry too much about reading the lengthy decision. Um, I'll summarize the facts. Just have a look at the remedy provision or the remedy section. Before I really get into it, I did want to mention I had planned on having the optional written assignment set for today, um, but I had somebody raise a very fair question, um, and in essence, the person asked if they could do a more traditional paper instead of this format of um, an intervener factum for the Supreme Court of Canada, and thinking about it, I thought, yeah, absolutely, like I don't want this sort of what I hope would be kind of a fun framing to detract from someone's um, desire or ability to tackle their written assignment. So I'm gonna slightly tweak it so you'll have two options to either do it in the framing of this factum or in the framing of a more traditional paper. And um, hopefully that will give you a choice that appeals to you if you want to do the written assignment. And of course, if you choose not to, absolutely no problem. But if you do it, it can't hurt you because you'll get the better of the two grades. Um, any sort of administrative questions or anything at the outset? Uh, I was just wondering one week, uh, I think it's the second week that the members offer the midterm itself. I don't see the dates for the second week of November, which it should be. Um, uh, isn't there a reading week there? I don't think it's a reading week in there. So we have uh, November 3rd uh, and 5th, and then we have the 17th all the So the one week in between is missing. Is it for the midterm? It's not, there's no midterm. Um, 
I thought there was a fall reading because there, there is right. Yeah, and I think it's yeah falls aren't class dates right. So that's why those classes aren't there. That's the fall reading week. Yeah, so that's um that's a nice thing that they have now. I didn't have that and. You know, I think it's especially easy to get behind in the fall with all the career services stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a really nice idea to have that catch-up ability. Um, you know, for this course, that might be a nice window to do that paper if that's something you're thinking about doing. Um, any other administrative questions? All right, so let's get into it. Um, I am going to... I've got the computer up today because I will be going through uh, a few statutory provisions, which ties into my first point today. Uh, and that is when you're thinking about remedies from an administrative tribunal, of course, the only things that they can do are things that are allowed to them by statute. So the first thing that you have to do, if you have a client walk in and say, I've got this problem, you have to think, okay, might there be an administrative tribunal that can deal with this sort of problem? If so, what tribunal and what is its enabling statute? This is a term we're gonna come back to. I don't think I've said it yet, but enabling statute means the statute that enables, right, this administrative tribunal to do certain things, to have its power. So for the residential tenancy branch, for example, it's the Residential Tenancy Act that is the enabling statute. For the Human Rights Tribunal, it's the Human Rights Code. If you have a person who come in with a, a problem and you're, you think there's a tribunal that might be able to help um, address this problem, you want to figure out the enabling statute, and you can almost always find that from the website of the tribunal itself. But it, it can require a bit of digging, but it's obviously worth doing, because the main point I'm trying to make is the only remedies they're going to be able to give you, of course, are those that are set out in the statute. So I'm just going to show you how a remedy provision in one of these statutes might look. So for example, in the Residential Tenancy Act, and of course this is the BC legislation that governs disputes between landlords and tenants, it creates what's called the Residential Tenancy Branch. I remember at least one or two students had said they had actually personally had to make a trip to the RTB, the Residential Tenancy Branch. And if you want to know what you might be able to get there, you bring up the Residential Tenancy Act, and you'd have a look at, um, at sections 63 to 72, and you see these various powers that are assigned to the director under the Residential Tenancy Act. Now, just I'll pause there to give you a bit of a tip on how to read quite a few of these administrative statutes. The powers will often, in the statute, be given to one individual, the director, the chairperson, whoever it is. And then there'll be another provision that allows the director to delegate those powers to decision makers. So when you look at the, um, the powers that are provided in the statute, 
you want to think who can exercise these powers and you want to also have a look through to make sure that there's a delegation down to the person you're actually talking to. So in this case, the director formally gets the powers. They can give them to the members of the residential tenancy board branch. And you see what the various things that the residential tenancy branch can do set out in these paragraphs, or these uh, provisions. And interestingly, the first thing that is suggested is that the director can assist in settling the dispute. And that's something that you don't see in courts. Um, you know, you will see sometimes judicially assisted mediation as a possible pretrial procedure. But you don't go to court and have the judge say first, okay, let's, let's go off the record for a second. Let's talk about settling this dispute. Um, that's, you've probably heard this phrase before, you know, without prejudice communications, settlement discussions, these types of things that are not supposed to uh, affect how your rights are determined by the court. And in fact, the court's not supposed to know about your settlement discussions, right? If you enter in settlement discussions with somebody and you say, okay, I recognize I might have a weakness on this area, so um, you know, I, I'm willing to give a little bit on this part of what I'm asking for, and then you don't settle your dispute, the other side can't come to court and say, well, he admitted that his case was weak there. You know, you can't do that. So usually settlement is without prejudice and is done not before the person is going to try to decide your litigation. But here they, explic they explicitly say in the act, no, you can try to settle this thing right at the outset of the hearing. And indeed, if you go to the residential tenancy branch hearings, that's the first thing they'll do ordinarily is they'll say, okay, is there any chance of settlement? Do you want to talk a little bit about settlement? Is there a way we can figure out something that works for both sides? Right there in the statute. Um, then you see going on in the, in the act um, some just direction about dispute resolution generally. And you see that the director must make a decision on the merits as disclosed by the evidence admitted and is not bound to follow other decisions under this part. So another interesting feature about administrative tribunals, right, is that they tend to not be bound by their own decisions. So you can have two different people interpreting this act in two different ways and applying it in two different ways to very similar facts or even nearly identical facts. And it's possible that both of those decisions you know, would be upheld on judicial review is within the range of reasonableness. And you see that explicitly contemplated within the act. Um, I'm just gonna go down to sh show the, um, the sort of remedies that, the, the way a remedy clause looks in an act like this. And so you see in 65, um, if, you, if the director finds a landlord or tenant has not complied with the act, the regulations, or a tenancy agreement, the director may make any of the following orders, that they must pay rent, they must deduct an amount of rent to be expended on maintenance or repair, that money must be repaid, that personal property seized must be returned. You know, these are the types of remedies that you could offer um, as possibilities to your client if you went to the residential tenancy branch. There's, I won't go through the whole provisions, but you see based on different um, problems that you bring to the RTB, there are different remedies that are offered. And 
If you're going to actually proceed with the residential tenancy dispute, you of course want to carefully review this section as the starting point. And if there's something that's just not provided for within this section, is a remedy that you simply cannot get from the RTB, then you want to know that and you want to think, what's the other way to get there? What's the other uh, process I might be able to take? And that brings me to a second really main point and that is at the outset, when you're meeting your client for the first time, there may often be more than one administrative tribunal that possibly could get involved in the dispute. This is an area we're going to come back to when we talk about how to determine the jurisdictional lines between tribunals. Sometimes there are disputes that are in the jurisdiction of two tribunals. Sometimes there are disputes that are um, only in the jurisdiction of one or the other, and sometimes the tribunals themselves can't agree on who has jurisdiction over this dispute. We're gonna talk more about that later in the course. There's actually a Supreme Court of Canada case that's under reserve that I expect to be coming out soon on that question, so I don't wanna give you the old law you know, until we give the court every chance possible to determine the new law there. But what I'm, that's a bit of a tangent, what I really want to uh, emphasize here is that there may be more than one place that your client could consider going to. And one of the areas this comes up most regularly is when there's a human rights component to your client's complaint. So your client's evicted and they're an Aboriginal person and they say, you know, I was evicted for, for being too loud, but I'm not loud. And in fact, um, you know, I know that in this big building, the only other person to get evicted in the last year was also an Aboriginal person. And I think that there's discrimination going on. Well, you may have a human rights complaint. You may have a Residential Tenancy Act complaint. You may have both. You may need to determine what is it that your client really wants. Do they want to keep living at that place? If that's the case, you might really want to focus on the residential tenancy component. Do they want money because they, they've been discriminated against and they want that landlord to be punished? You might then be thinking more human rights. Um, are you not sure which one to go? You might start both and then you could, you could stay one, you could stop one if you can't proceed with both. But the timelines are often very tight on these types of, um, to go to a tribunal. And the worst thing you could do as a lawyer, the easiest way to get you know, sued or to have to call the law society and self-report is to miss a limitations period. The easiest area to miss limitations periods in is within tribunal practice because the deadlines can be so, so, so short. I think with the Residential Tenancy Act, you have like 21 days after an eviction notice to challenge it. And if you don't challenge it, there's a, a deemed forfeiture provision, which means that uh, it's deemed that you, you forfeited your right to challenge it and the you know, eviction stands. So what I'm getting at is, if somebody comes to your office, you want to figure out what tribunals may be available to assist them, look at what remedies those tribunals could offer, Make sure you get the thing started in time. 
And it may be better to start multiple processes instead of, um, and then you can discontinue or stay one. You know, certainly better than missing a limitations period. Quite often, the overlap is with human rights. Um, that's an area to keep in the back of your mind throughout your administrative law practice. There's a few areas of law that kind of superimpose over um, the rest of the legal system and can cause really quite difficult legal problems to arise. Human rights is one of them because the Human Rights Code explicitly states that um, if there is a conflict between this code and any other enactment, this code prevails. So the, the human rights provision is sort of superimposed over all other BC law. And the conflicts can get quite, um, quite difficult to ascertain. So for example, I had, a, um, I had a case I worked on once where an individual was disabled and they had a, um, like a motor scooter and these scooters have these batteries which you're not supposed to be able to take on planes. And so he was going somewhere and he was quite embarrassingly removed from the plane when they tried to take his battery. He, you know, said, I, you can't, I can't do anything in this other side of, you know, when I land, if I can't move, you can't take my battery from my wheelchair. They said, we can, we are, we're going to, you're off the plane. And so he comes and he says, what do I do? And I go, well, this is tricky. Because you've got a transportation appeal or a transportation um, administrative system, federal transportation administrative system, that deals with complaints about uh, transportation, federally regulated transportation, like airplanes. You've also got human rights law that would prohibit discrimination against a person on the basis of physical disability. So which direction do you go? Well, what, what remedy do you want? Do you want to be able to bring your, your battery uh, pack on the plane next time? Do you want to change sort of the practice and the rule around what they can, when they can tell you you can't bring this battery on? If so, maybe we're going to the transportation. Do you feel like you are personally affronted, your dignity is affronted, and you want some sort of recognition or compensation for that affront to your dignity? If so, we're probably going to human rights. And so that ties into a, another element that I want to emphasize, and that is when you're thinking about remedy, um, you want to think about not only what from your perspective would seem to be the most beneficial remedy, you know, i.e., well, you probably want money, right? Where can we get the most money? But you also want to think from your client's perspective, what are they, what's driving them to your office? You know, is it something that they have a going forward problem that they want to, you know, not deal with again? Or are they just, frankly, pissed off and they, they want to, they feel like they've been wronged and they want some way to, you know, make the person who feels like, or they feel have wronged them, um, face what they've done, uh, face up to it, and you know, quite often you'll you'll have a client who um, what they say they want is their you know quote unquote day in court. Uh, will a tribunal satisfy them that they've gotten their day in court? Well, 
Some tribunals are, are very formal and very court-like. Some are very informal and can be rather unsatisfying. Um, you know, in, in the sense of feeling like you've been heard and, and vindicated if there's no oral argument, you're never seeing the decision maker in person. You know, these types of things can diminish how much it feels like you've been heard and, and had your complaint satisfied. So what I'm getting at here is there's a broad range of considerations that may be driving what remedy is the thing that your client really wants. And you need to listen and you need to think carefully about where of the various places you might be able to find those remedies most easily. This is a difficult part of admin law at the beginning because there are so many tribunals and so many different places that you can go seek uh, you know, redress. And I've certainly made the mistake personally where you just don't think about a tribunal. And then someone's like, well, why don't you go here? Really? Because I never thought about it. Sorry. Like I, you know, you, don't, you can't possibly know all of them at the outset. So it is an area that when you're practicing, um, you know, develop those mentorship relationships, talk to people, say, hey, this person came in with this thing. I'm thinking of sending it to the Transportation Commission of Canada. You see any other angles, any other places they should go? Oh yeah, try human rights. They're, these types of conversations are, are absolutely invaluable. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. I was just asking, I know in the Supreme Court you're not supposed to bring multiple claims to the same issue. In admin tribunals, is that different? Um, and is there any negative repercussions for bringing the same issue to a bunch of different tribunals? It's an excellent, excellent question. And absolutely, it's an abusive process is the general doctrine you're, you're looking at uh, in courts to bring multiple claims and multiple tribunals. The administrative tribunals don't want to have unnecessary work and they don't want to um, be overlapping with other tribunals' work. And so if you're going to proceed with the same general set of facts in more than one tribunal, that may be possible because the remedies may be just different and you may in fact have to proceed in two different places to make your client whole because there may be, you know, um, let's say a systemic going forward remedy is only available from one tribunal and there may be a compensation based remedy that's only available from the other tribunal. But when you have a situation where two tribunals are aware that they are, uh, you know, there's cases being brought forward in both of them. And indeed, the, the respondent will certainly make them aware, aware of that, right? Um, they have the ability to stay their own proceeding and say, we're not going ahead with this. Go, go finish up over there. Um, it's very similar to conflict of laws, like international law, forum non-convenience type stuff, where if you're Outside of the jurisdiction, i.e., you came to me, but I can't do anything for you. Well, that's one thing. You know, then they just say, you're out of here, you're booted. But oftentimes they say, well, I could help you, but you have elected to proceed over here, and I'm not going to go forward with this until you've resolved that. How they resolve those disputes um, is really unpredictable. It can be. Um, Inconsistent from, from case to case, it's an area that uh, you know, I think needs significant 
reform, and, and that's what I hope comes in this Supreme Court of Canada case that's upcoming. But you're absolutely right to point that out. Um, now, when I say you might want to start more than one, there's usually very little downside to starting a proceeding if you're willing to withdraw it, if it becomes clear that it's not the proper way to go forward. Administrative tribunals very rarely have costs, consequences for a um, sort of a false start. At, at worst, you, um, you know, you're going to forfeit the filing fee usually, which is not very much. You know, to file at the RTB is like a hundred bucks. I think that human rights is about the same. So you, you might lose that, but certainly that's better than missing your limitations period. Um, so there's not the same downside as there is in starting multiple court proceedings where you're almost certainly going to face a significant cost award if you're found to have abused your process by you know, trying more than one place. Um, so the practical advice of starting different proceedings, you know, that doesn't extend to saying you should always see those through to completion, but it is just that point that if in doubt, better to file than miss a limitations period because you can much more easily withdraw an improperly started proceeding than you can start a new proceeding late. Yeah. Uh, how much of the types of remedies? Because I feel like, for example, if I had a fine chart, it was clearly going to be issued, but we don't see the evictions, but that also makes our key issues is prohibited on you know, insane grounds. Yeah. So what we did in that case, just because of the timing, yeah. was we filed for RTV certain ways, built the case pretty quickly, and then the moment of the verdict from the RTV went into the 813. But since the 813s, you know, get monitored compensation for like injuries, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question and a classic example. Absolutely classic example. And it's really a discretionary decision of the decision makers as to whether they want to have them staged or proceed at the same time. But they will often let those things go forward at the same time for exactly that reason that you said, which is you're just asking for different things. I want to stay in my house and I want you to pay for being, you know, whatever it is, discriminatory. Um, so absolutely, those are ones that you can often proceed with at the same time. Um, your, your facts may be such that they may say, okay, you're so far along in this one process, this one's barely started, um, I'm not gonna you know, finish this one up first and then we'll, we'll go along with that. Um, and there may be other reasons that a tribunal may say, in my discretion, we're not gonna go ahead with this right now. But, um, but yeah, that's a classic example, great point of situations where you're asking for two different things that are available from two different tribunals and there isn't their theoretical reason you can't ask for both. So follow up question on that. Yeah. So when I was reading this closing case, uh, we just heard Justice Green says that when the applicant or applicant chooses to uh, ask for money instead of uh, judicial review, so he just takes the money and walk away. This is the language he used. Uh, I was wondering what happens to the wrong decision when you go or maybe uh, it's a great, great question. I'm going to put a pin in that when I come back to it because Telezone is about money, getting money from the court, not from an administrative tribunal. And we'll get to that after the break. So that's going to be a little, in about an hour when we get to that point. 
So good, good question, but we'll come back to it. All right, any other questions? Okay, so um, just picking up right my notes. Okay, so quick point about when you're reading these remedy provisions, you want to think that there is going to be a little bit of flexibility and how the court allows the tribunal to interpret its remedial powers. And they may find that certain um, remedies are implicitly available to the tribunal because they're necessary to accomplish the explicit remedial powers that are granted. And to make that a bit clearer, uh, what I'm talking about is there may be a situation where there's an ability to get sort of an ongoing systemic remedy to fix an ongoing problem with an institution. A tribunal may remain seized of a matter. And if there's this sort of an ability to give an ongoing remedy going forward to fix a systemic problem, your, your training is systemically deficient, your workplace safety has been, you know, bad for, for years and you've got multiple complaints and we need to get your roofing company fixed up before someone dies. That sort of a thing. If there's an ability to remain seized and remain uh, involved in a matter, there may be implicitly an ability to require, say, reporting. Right? It's just it's sort of implicit that you must be able to require them to continue to give you information if you're going to continue to monitor their compliance with your order, something like that. So you want to think that if there's a power that's necessary to accomplish the broader remedial goal that's set out in the statute, even if you can't find it explicitly, you may be able to argue that it's an implicit power given to the tribunal. So these remedial powers are going to be read you know, with a close eye by the courts. And if you're outside the jurisdiction, you know, you just don't have the ability to order a monetary remedy tribunal. I don't care. It doesn't, it's not in the statute. You can't do it. And that, that may be an answer. But the courts are going to be pragmatic. Uh, they're not going to hamstring the tribunals so that they can't get to a remedy because, you know, while you have the power to do this ultimate thing, we're going to say you don't have the power to do the necessary steps along the way. It's not the way the courts are going to go. So you can think that, look to the statute, and remember that there may be some powers that are found implicit in these explicit powers that are granted. That's sort of a broader legal proposition that's important to carry with you, the idea that there may be some implicit powers um, that, are, that are granted in any number of different contexts when that power is necessary to accomplish the expressly granted goal of the statute. All right. Um, one thing I like about the way this chapter is written, and again, I think this is a, a really good chapter, uh, is I like how the author, and it's Christy Ford, this one, right? Or is it Liston? Christy Ford? Yeah. I always, yeah, Christy Ford. I love the way Christy Ford. Um, 
ties together the remedial powers of the tribunal with the features of tribunals that make them distinct from courts. Uh, and so it's a neat way to think about sort of why do these tribunals have some interesting remedial options before them. And she says, well, one reason is that you have lay members, non-legally trained members of many of these tribunals. And so they're not going to come with a predisposition towards thinking of remedies in terms of what would be available in court. They're going to think more pragmatically, you know, here's a problem, how do we solve it? Quite often, with the specialized tribunals, these people who are going to be lay members on the tribunal have a background in the very area you know, it's being regulated, right? And so they may think, look, I know the industry, I know this problem, and I know how to solve it. And they're not going to feel as constrained by saying, okay, well, I can only order you know, particular remedies in terms of dispute before me, et cetera, et cetera. They may look at their statute and say there's a broad power to you know, grant a, uh, a remedial option that's going to fix this problem going forward. I'm going to get a little bit creative, and I'm going to order a, a third-party auditor to come in with this particular task in order to ensure that this company changes its practices in a way that's going to cure this systemic gender discrimination, or something like that. So it's, there's ways of thinking that, um, you know, that can be brought forward when you're not so focused in the world of courts and the remedies that are available in courts. Related to that, I also like how um, she notes that the, the ongoing regulatory relationship may affect the remedies that are available. If you're in a regulated industry, securities or pipelines, going to this regulator is not a one-off in the way it is when you go to court. You know, you go to court, you have this one dispute, you're going to see this judge only once, unless you're frankly very unlucky. That's not the case with your industry regulator. You're going to see them again next month. You're going to see them again next year. You know, you're going to have this ongoing regulatory relationship, which again allows the more systemic, systematic, and forward-looking remedial options to be available. You're going to fix this, right? You're going to fix it this way, and if you don't, when we check in next year, we're going to try something else. These types of options are available to administrative tribunals in a way that are not available to courts. You might remember from constitutional law, remember the Doucette Boudreaux case? This was um, a case uh, out of the Maritimes where there was a you know, an ongoing remedy ordered by the courts of requiring a check-in on how, I think the issue was French language schools and how the government was doing in getting the French language schools up to speed. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, okay, you know, it's all right that the, um, that the court ordered that remedy of an ongoing check-in, but only over the most scathing dissent, saying this is, 
you know, completely opposite of the role of the courts. Courts decide issues and then they're done. They don't get to keep an ongoing interest in a dispute that's outside of the division or separation of powers between the judiciary and the executive. A very controversial decision and it's been, um, you know, followed rather rarely, frankly, the ongoing oversight remedial option to, ch to cure a charter breaches found in Doucette Boudreaux. But in the tribunal context, that type of ongoing oversight is common and not controversial. So you want to think, um, you know, what makes these tribunals different from courts? You have the lay members, you have people with specific um, expertise in the area, and you have this ongoing oversight relationship at times. And when you put all those things together, those can resonate in different types of remedies. Um, the court has a nice sort of, or the court, the book has a nice discussion on this question of systemic oversight, where they, they kind of, Ford posits two different cases to illustrate that you can have that sort of systemic oversight, but sometimes it can be found to go too far. Um, she's got the, um, the McKinney case, which involved discrimination at a correctional institution in Ontario. And the administrative process there, I think she says, extended over 20 years of, of you know, one case sort of going back and forth between the tribunal and to implementation, the tribunal overseeing the implementation of the decision. And there's very creative remedies brought in, including an order that third party people come in to create training programs, right? And that there be an external auditor, a third party auditor come in to oversee uh, elements of the correctional services uh, you know, operation. And she posits this is a drawn-out saga that ultimately had a successful outcome in that there was a, a settlement and the, the complainant found that his uh, concerns had presumably adequately been met over the course of this long, long, long process that, you know, frankly, hopefully had the effect of significantly diminishing what was clearly a real problem with discrimination within this correctional service. And so that's the... That's the win, right? That's the one that worked. Um, she also notes, though, as a bit of a cautionary tale from going too far, the Moore case um, out of BC. Have you studied that case in Charter? Moore. It's a case about a, um, there's a, a child with autism. It's in Vancouver, I think, or maybe North Vancouver. And the government had dramatically decreased funding for um, sort of these, for a, a, a diverted stream for autistic students, and instead went with a model of integrate autistic students within the, uh, the, the general classes. Moore brought, Moore's parents brought a, um, a challenge saying, you know, in essence, you've you've done this for cost-saving purposes, um, you haven't replicated the same level of, of 
care as as the same level of sort of excellence in autistic education as we had in the separate streams, and this is discriminatory. And Moore wins, you know, going up Supreme Court of Canada. But one thing that the Supreme Court of Canada did say was a problem was the Human Rights Commission in British Columbia. They looked really deep into the operations of government about how the budget was set and allocated and the strings on the budget and made findings about the discriminatory and sort of broadly systemic discriminatory problems that arose as a result. And the court said, look, you know, it's one thing to have uh, an eye towards the broader context and to have a, um, to try to solve a problem in a more general way, but it's another way to, you know, they describe it as become a royal commission and effectively try to oversight, oversee the broad functioning of governments in a, you know, second guessing choices that were made by the government to allocate money and resources. So they say, you can look to the broader problems, but don't lose sight of the fact that your job, Human Rights Commission at least, is to resolve the dispute that's before you. And of course, there are different tribunals with different missions, and, and some of the missions will be more broad and systemic and forward-looking and regulating an entire industry. A National Energy Board or something like that is a it's got a very broad mandate. And so you might have better luck with a more systemic argument there. Some tribunals are really aimed at resolving specific disputes between two people. Residential Tenancy Act, for example. And so you're unlikely to get a decision from the Residential Tenancy Act that's going to you know, broadly reform landlord practice throughout British Columbia. It's rather going to be, let's resolve the dispute before us to ensure that there's uh, you know, a fair and just outcome. So what I'm getting at with that is you want to think that tribunals have this interesting ability to be more forward-looking and to think about sort of systemic and broad solutions. And at times, it can be very successful in accomplishing things the courts wouldn't be able to do, both because of the breadth of what can be considered and because the tribunal can remain involved in a matter for a very long period of time. However, there are going to be limits to how far you can push that. Um, and you want to think about the nature of the tribunal that you're going to. And if you really want a broad and systemic remedy, you, know, you may not be in the right place if you're looking at a tribunal whose real function is to resolve individual small disputes between two people. Does that all make sense? Excellent. Okay. The next thing the book talks about, which I, I like, is enforcement of remedies. So this is sort of leaving aside the remedial powers at tribunals and getting to now you have a remedy, what do you do with it? So just before I move into the enforcement, let's just take a step back, big picture. What do you want to take away about the remedies that are available at tribunals? 
Well, it's that there's a broad array of remedies available. You look to the statute. You look to the statute as perhaps expanded by implicit powers that are necessary to accomplish that statute. Um, you have to think that different tribunals are gonna have different uh, degrees to which they're gonna look beyond just the pure dispute before them. And that more practical point of, you know, when in doubt, if you're facing limitations, starting multiple tribunals, you can always slow down. So know the breadth, but there's a lot out there. You go, you get your, your remedy from a tribunal, what do you do with it? And this is one of those things that um, I don't think is touched upon very much, at least when I went to law school, is enforcement of court orders. But they're really hard to enforce. Court orders are, and so are administrative orders, you know, if the other side doesn't want to follow them. We really depend a lot on people just believing in and voluntarily complying with court orders. If everybody were to stop complying with court orders, it'd be very hard to you know, bring down the power of the state to enforce them against everybody. And when you have somebody who's like, I, I know you got the order against me, but what are you going to do about it? It's one of the hardest situations that you can be in as a lawyer, and you can feel very powerless. And goodness, does it, is it the worst for your client when you're like, hey, I got you this great remedy. They're like, yeah, but they're not doing it. And so then you think, okay, well, it's going to be a lot of work to enforce it. You know, and you feel really bad because you're like, you... You got this order, now this person is doing this, now I have to ask you to pay more money, or you know, you feel bad and you take it on pro bono or a reduced rate to do the enforcement, and you know, that can be tricky. So it's a, it's a really fraught area. You want to have in mind when you are going for a remedy, the enforceability of that remedy. So you know, for example, let's say you, um, you scratch and you save and you buy a house and you decide to rent out the basement suite and the tenant absolutely destroys it and splits and leaves to Alberta. Do you want to go to the RTB and get an order that they pay you back for the, uh, you know, for the damage that's been done to your suite? Maybe. Uh, is it going to be easy to actually get that money from that person? Absolutely not. It's going to be very difficult to get that money. So enforcement is something that you want to have in mind when you're thinking about remedies, not just what remedies can I get an order for, but what can I get you know, enforcement of. And so when you're thinking about how you're gonna enforce these remedies, again, the powers to enforce are gonna be found within the statute. And some statutes have really strong enforcement powers that can be invoked directly by the tribunal and can include things like garnishing you know, from a bank account, seizing real property or assets. If you've got some of those powers, hey, that, you're in pretty good shape, right? Maybe the person flat out has no money and never will, that absolutely happens. But if they're, you know, they went off to Alberta to go work in you know, Fort McMurray for a little bit, you know, money's coming in and let's, let's get an order and let's get that, um, Let's get some seizure coming out of the bank account. 
So you want to have a look within the statute and see if there are any enforcement powers that are directly provided. Usually though, the answer will be no. The answer will be they can make these orders and the way to enforce them, they will say, is that they can be registered with the court or enforced as an order of the court. So then you have to go, you go to the court, you say, I've got this certified copy of this tribunal order. The court desk stamps it. Okay, this is now an order of the BC Supreme Court. You then have all your ordinary remedial options from the BC Supreme Court, which again can be deficient at times. You could do an examination and aid of execution. These types of, this is getting a bit beyond the scope of this course, but there's a lot of powers that the court has to enforce orders. The most significant power the court has to enforce orders that have been breached is contempt, right? You bring a, uh, a motion for contempt of court, and contempt of court can result in fines, imprisonment, it's actually a pretty radical range of remedies. Contempt of court is the last common law criminal offense, criminal contempt of court, so it's as broad as the judges want it to be. Now, I'm, I don't want you to get too fussed about you know, what the court can do and the process by which you enforce in the court, but what I do want you to think about and really try to carry this forward is that question of, if I get a remedy, can I enforce it? And what would it take to enforce it? There's another nuance is the criminal code, section 127, which makes it a criminal offense to, to um, fail to comply with a order or order of lawful authority or whatever. I forget the exact language, it's in the book. This is a very flimsy thing to rely upon in order to enforce your administrative order. If you think that the police are gonna go and make this a priority, that's very unlikely, the breach of a breach of an administrative tribunal order. You know, call them and say, hey, I've got this residential tenancy branch order and my, my tenant is supposed to be uh, doing these repairs and not doing them. Can you come arrest him? Like, no, <laughs> we're not doing that. So it's a, um, it's a thing that's out there. It's a thing that you can very rarely rely upon as being an actual thing that's going to enforce a tribunal order against an individual. Any questions about these sort of remedies issues we've so, so far? Yeah. I was wondering, is it, is it uh, within the scope of uh, lawyers undertaking uh, against a client to ensure the enforceability of the orders? Either the court or tribunal, because a lawyer is not a non-contagious body or something. Yeah, well, you, you need to give your client advice on the enforceability of the order and the options that are available to them and the steps that may need to be taken and the cost of those steps. But, you know, you're, yeah, you're not an executive body. You can't go personally enforce an order. Um, you can hire a bailiff, you could hire a private investigator, these types of things, but you can't personally go and 
and enforce the order. Yeah. So as a matter of fact, it's necessary to at least explain and uh, put forward everything that's going to happen. Exactly. It's necessary to provide that advice. Exactly. Yeah. All right. I'm just going to tackle one more subject before we um, before we take our, our brief break. Um, and that is the uh, the court notes that, or the book notes that there's a few circumstances whereby you can take steps to um, obtain a remedy as against the tribunal itself for a, a mistake that doesn't involve going to court. So this is transitioning away from thinking about the breadth of remedies that are available from a tribunal and moving into the idea of well, what are your remedies if you don't like what a tribunal's done? I mean, that's what judicial review is ultimately about. So it's still remedies, but they're, those are very different concepts, right? And what the court says is, um, or I keep saying the court, right? really am ready to elevate Christy Ford to a judge, I guess. What the, um, what the book says, or notes, is that you want to think if there is an internal review mechanism that might assist in getting the result you want without having to go to court at all. So one of the easiest ones is um, if there's a slip in the, in the order. This is a concept that you may have heard of before and you certainly will hear of again. Um, slips or omissions happen all the time. You get your court order and um, it's missing the word not or something like that. So it says exactly the opposite of what everybody knows it is, intends to read. This happens, and sometimes you're so in it, you don't even notice it. You're like, great, there it is, looks fine. You know, we'll all sign the order, and then you look at it, oh, so that's wrong. <laughs> it's, it's missing the word that matters. Um, when that, there's that type of accidental omission, a slip, a clerical error, you just go back to the tribunal, they'll fix it. They all have the power to do that sort of thing. So slips, little accidents, and reducing an order to writing, no problem. Just go get those fixed. Some tribunals, though, have the power to reconsider past decisions. That's quite a different thing, right? It's one thing to say we can fix it if we made a little mistake in reducing it to writing. It's another thing to say, okay, we'll have another look at this. I have mentioned this before in the context of workers' compensation, how they've got this mechanism whereby the workers' compensation board just hears tons of cases, makes tons of decisions. They hope to get them right 90% of the time, but they don't spend as much time on each decision as you might need to in order to really get to the bottom of it. But if you're unhappy as a worker, you go to the appeal tribunal, and you get a chance to have a more in-depth analysis at that level. Some tribunals have an ability to reconsider that is more limited than that. So the appeal tribunal basically can rehear any workers' compensation decision. But the, um, ah, shoot, my password is like endless numbers and I'm just not going to put the, the thing up. I'll put it up at, at, the, at the break. Um, the Residential Tenancy Act has much more limited ability to reconsider decisions. 
So the section I was going to put up, but it's relatively short, I'll just read it to you. It says, a party to a dispute resolution proceeding may apply to the director, again the director, for a review of the director's decision or order. A decision or order of the director may be reviewed only on one or more of the following grounds. A party was unable to attend the original hearing because of circumstances that could not be anticipated or beyond the party's control. A party has new and relevant evidence that was not available at the time of the original hearing. Or a party has evidence that the director's decision or order was obtained by fraud. So if the decision is just dead wrong, just is clearly wrong, it doesn't make any sense in the facts, you don't fit in any of those. Right? You can't go for reconsideration, so you have to go to court. But if you say, okay, right after the hearing, I found this smoking gun piece of evidence that shows the landlord you know, knew that this was the case and they lied about it at the hearing, well, then you can go back to the tribunal for reconsideration. So you want to think that these reconsideration powers sometimes exist, sometimes are very broad, sometimes are very narrow, but you certainly want to look and see if they exist before advising your client we're going to go to the court. Almost always going with an internal administrative reconsideration, if it's available, is going to be faster and cheaper than going to court. Furthermore, and a point we're going to get to after the break, the court may refuse to even give you a remedy if it finds you failed to what's called exhaust internal remedies. Exhaust your internal, i.e. within the statute itself. Exhaust the internal uh, remedies that could help you resolve the dispute you're trying to bring to the courts. Um, one last point before we take our break. The book mentions that if you're unhappy with the administrative decision maker, there may be other non-court remedies that you may want to seek that are outside of that administrative um, scheme itself. And it mentions specifically going to the ombudsperson, where you can effectively file complaints about administrative decision-makers. It's one of the things you can do there. Um, I found my personal practice is that the ombudsperson uh, can be very responsive, a very interesting uh, person to talk to and to work with, but they also can be very easy to ignore uh, by the decision-maker. So I had, an, I had a case with, um, in the municipal law context, which just to let you know, municipal law is very similar to administrative law because municipalities, um, they're effectively administrative decision bodies. They get their power from a statute, like the Vancouver Charter, or whatever the legislation is that created the municipality and they have to stay within those powers. And so municipal law is often the review of the actions of a municipal body to see if it stayed within the scope of its jurisdiction, which really sounds a lot like administrative law. So I had this case with this guy out in, 
Abbotsford, and he had a, an abattoir on his property. He was like an organic chicken farmer who um, wanted to be able to slaughter his chickens at his place because it's pretty complicated, but in essence, if you want to brand your chickens under your own brand, you can't bring them to commercial abattoirs because they just put them all into the, the mix and they will um, isolate your meat as compared to anybody else's. And so this guy builds this abattoir on his property. The city of Abbotsford says that's outside of zoning. You're not allowed to do that. He says, what are you talking about? The zoning, if you read it, is pretty clear that it allows me to do this. They say, we disagree. He goes to the ombudsperson. The ombudsperson says, Abbotsford, you're crazy. This clearly allows this person to do this. Abbotsford says, nope, like, we, we disagree with you. Um, even the BC Attorney General got involved and said, you're crazy. Abbotsford still said, no. So <laughs> what's his only option? Judicial review, right? Um, so there is these other ideas, like go to the ombudsperson, um, going outside of court. The, they can be you know, interesting things to do. They're, they're, I'm sure there are success stories, but ultimately there's a limit on the remedial power of those bodies. And if you want the, the strong thing of a court order against the tribunal saying, hey, you did it wrong, do it again, do it this way maybe, you know, the only place to get that is through a court either in a statutory appeal or a judicial review. So we'll take our break and we'll talk about statutory appeals and judicial reviews in terms of remedy. Uh, we'll come back in, in um, let's try for 10 minutes if that's okay, 11.45. All right, let's get back to it. So I want to start with, again, as I said, touching on the statutory appeal versus judicial review question. A question I think I probably mentioned almost every class, but I want to bring back again here in terms of remedy. So again, some administrative tribunals will, in their enabling statute, be explicitly subjected to review by the courts. This is really important in light of Babylon. We'll see how this all comes together in you know, a few short weeks. But I want to show you an example first of what a statutory appeal provision would look like. I've mentioned this one before. This is the Legal Professions Act. So this is the provision that sets out the ability to bring an appeal from a determination of a law society panel. And so you see, subject to subsection 2, any of the following persons who are affected by a decision, determination, or order, this is interesting, of a panel or of a review board may appeal the decision, determination, or order to the court of appeal. Then you see applicant, respondent, lawyer, the society. What's interesting about that is the panel process is when you go to a hearing and the allegation that you've professionally misconducted yourself or that you're not fit for entry into the legal profession is determined by three individuals, a bencher, a non-bencher lawyer, and a lay, uh, a lay individual.
the panel decisions can be internally reviewed by a review board. So the Legal Professions Act contemplates an internal review process. However, clearly, you don't have to do that internal review process in order to go to the Court of Appeal because Section 48 explicitly allows you to do so. So if you're disappointed with the decision of the panel, you can appeal the decision to the Court of Appeal directly, not to the BC Supreme Court. It's an interesting power that's provided, interesting statutory appeal mechanism. What's also interesting is, and something you want to bear in mind whenever you look at statutory appeal mechanisms, is whether there's any limitation on what can be considered or ordered through the statutory appeal. Subsection 2, you see an appeal by the society is limited to an appeal on a question of law. So if the law society, who as I mentioned is the one who brings and prosecutes these proceedings, confusingly enough to a law society panel, they wear two hats, but if the prosecutorial side of the law society is disappointed in a decision, it needs to say, well, is this a question of law? Did they get the law wrong? Or am I just disappointed in how they found and applied the facts to the law? If it's the latter, you know, they are going to have no luck at the Court of Appeal. Whereas if a member of the Law Society is upset with how the facts have been applied or found, well, then they have the ability to go to the Court of Appeal on that question of fact as well as of law. You'll see there's no limitations on the remedy that is available on the statutory appeal, which would mean that the court would simply say, it's my ordinary appellate remedies that I would have. So look for a statutory appeal mechanism and I want to point out something in your book, um, page 65. You have a, a paragraph that starts, um, yet even where the appeal rights are broad, courts will show deference to a tribunal's decisions. That paragraph, you could almost cross out of your book, okay? That's no longer good law. That's sort of explicitly what Vavilov changed. It was just getting a little ahead of ourselves, but it was long the expectation that even when there was a statutory appeal, the general framework that would be applied was the same as the judicial review framework. In Vavilov, they said, no, we think that the courts or the parliament's intention in giving the courts this appeal power is that they are going to review them as they would any other appeal, and that does not include deference on questions of law. So that's getting ahead of ourselves, but that's where that's getting at. And I wanted to um, mention that just because it is in the book. Uh, the old framing is in the book. Certainly won't be in the next edition, I'm sure. Yeah. 
That being said, if the statute did not explicitly give courts power to appeal the tribunal's decisions, would tribunals um, still have to give them that deference? So if there's no ability to appeal to the courts from a tribunal decision, uh, then your only remedy is judicial review, which is going to be the deference framework. Yeah. So the so what you're getting at is the really key point coming out of Babylon about statutory appeals is as the person who's disappointed with an administrative decision, you want to find that statutory appeal if it exists and you want to use it because it's the way to get around the deference framework. All right, so we're going to come back to statutory appeals more. I want to get into what is really the, the meat of this part of the, um, of the course. Uh, what are the remedies that are available from a court when you go to judicial review? This is where I think most lectures on remedy would have started, but I'm glad that the book directed us to think more broadly about remedy in the other contexts of what's available from the tribunals themselves and how might you avoid going to court. These are very good practical ideas to be thinking about. But now let's think about, well, you're disappointed in an administrative decision. Your, your client comes in disappointed. We've had a look, there's no statutory appeal mechanism. What can you offer them? What can you say the courts could offer to them? And the first point that I want to make, and this is a really important one, is almost always the best thing the courts could give your client is a do-over at the administrative tribunal level. Almost always the courts are going to just say, you did it wrong, do it again, but I'm not going to tell you you couldn't come to the same ultimate conclusion next time around. There's almost always the possibility that the tribunal will rehear the decision and your client will still lose, maybe for a different reason if it was a decision that was found to not make sense in its substance. They'll clarify and say, well, okay, my reasons were off, but..." You still lose because you're inconsistent with the purpose of the act for these various reasons. For these various reasons, they may say, "Okay, it was unfair last time. Now you can say your piece, but it didn't convince me that we were wrong last time." They may say, "Oh, it looked like the decision maker was biased last time. I have a new decision maker for you who's not biased, but found the same thing. Found the same ultimate result." So the ability for the tribunal to come to the same decision is something that you need to tell your clients about right at the outset. And you hear these horror stories of lawyers who don't do a good job of explaining that. And then you go through judicial review, you get them a remedy, they love you, then they say, well, what do you mean it's back before the tribunal? What do you mean it's the exact same result again? What do you mean I spent $30,000 for you to do all that and I got nothing out of it? So you have to let them know this is a possibility. And there's a corollary to that. If the best thing you're gonna get is another kick at the can at the tribunal level, you need to think about whether you even need to go to the court to get that. 
So let's say you are a landlord. You're trying to evict somebody. And you fail to, to get the eviction um, upheld at the residential tenancy branch. I had, I'll give you an example. I had a case. So this in Belcara Park. Anybody ever been to Belcara Park? It's beautiful, like out in Port Moody area. Belcara Park has these really old, like 100-year-old cabins. And there are people who have been living there under a tenancy arrangement for like 50 years, 60 years. One woman's been living there for like 60 years. She's in her 80s. Um, Metro Vancouver Regional District wants to expand the park. And they want to evict the people from the cabins so that they can convert this area, which is residential, like it's private, it's their little private area, into broader public park use. Gives a notice of eviction. It goes to the RTB. The RTB says, if you want to evict because you want to change these into these non-residential um, sort of part of the park, you can do that, but you need to have the permits in place to do the work that you're going to do. And they note that you haven't decided what you're going to do with one of these cabins, so you have to make a decision before you uh, evict. You, you, you're premature in your eviction. So what did the RTB effectively say? Go get the permits. Go make a decision as to what you're doing with this cabin. If they do that, what could Metrovan do? Just evict again, right? Okay, you didn't like it last time because we didn't have the permits. We got the permits, we're evicting again, we listened to you. What do you think their chances of success after doing exactly what the RTB said they were supposed to do would be? Like 100% almost, right? What did Metro Van do instead? They thought there was a, a big flaw in the reasoning of the arbitrator, so they brought an application for judicial review. I was retained to defend the application for a judicial review, and I lost. I'm really surprised. I thought I was going to win that one. But you never know. You, sometimes you lose things that you think you're going to win. Sometimes you get the wrong judge, or sometimes you know maybe you were still to lunch and didn't do a, didn't do a good job. Uh, so I lose. But it takes like a year and a bit to lose. In that period, they're still in the cabin. Well, what do I do after I lose? What's my next thing? To, next step. Well, I lost it. I lost on judicial review. I pump it up again, right? Let's go to the Court of Appeal. Why not? So we go to the Court of Appeal. And that takes about another year. I lose again. I mean, I was not my, not, not my case. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. I was like so convinced I was right. Like I've never been more like, but I'm right. <laughs> but apparently not. What could I have even done next? I could have tried to go to the Supreme Court of Canada, and I didn't, but I could have stretched out even longer. The end result is, then it gets kicked back to the RTB. There's another hearing set for like four months later. We're now at like nearly three years post the eviction. Ultimately, I raise a bunch of new issues. 
we come to a settlement that gives them another year in the cabin. So they're going to leave, but they got four extra years. And the lady's now, the 80-year-old the is now of an age that she really needs to, to move to a place that's going to be a little more supportive than these like, cabins where it's log heating and outhouses. It's pretty incredible she lived there for so long. So did I lose? Like, yes, I lost repeatedly. <laughs> but also, did Metro Van get what they wanted? Not really. It took them four years to get these people out of these cabins when they could have simply listened to the RTB, got the permit, issued a new eviction notice, and had the whole thing wrapped up in a couple of months. And so, where was the mistake? It happened when Metrovan went to their lawyers. The lawyers should have said, sure, I can go to a judicial review. I may win. I may lose. But either way, all you're getting is just going back to the residential tenancy branch. But we can go there anyways. And we can go there with a better chance of success because we'll have listened to and responded to their concerns. So the bad advice from that lawyer, and I would say that is bad advice. Like it's clear that there's a better remedial option that was available. Uh, caused their client to pay, you know, I would guess, two hundred thousand dollars, three hundred thousand dollars of legal fees, and to not get their their goal accomplished for for several years, extra. So, you want to think when you're thinking about going to court. Best case scenario, I'm just getting another decision from this body. It may go the same way. And there may be another way to get another kick at the can from that same body. There is often an ability to try again. You don't have to go and, um, and get an order from the court to try again if you can change the, the factual basis somewhat that you're going forward on. Does that all make sense? All right. So, yeah. This will happen if it's a procedural review, right? Sir? If it's a procedural judicial review and not if it's a substantive judicial review. Even if it's a substantive judicial review, usually they say your decision was unreasonable in the how you got there, but I'm not going to say you couldn't get to the same place for some other reason. So even substantive judicial reviews can often end up with the same outcome. It's, um, it's not a guarantee, and I'll talk more about that quite a bit as we get into actual substantive judicial review and a little bit more today also. Um, I haven't forgotten about the telezone. It's actually the last thing in my notes, so we may get to it today, we may get to it first thing on Friday. Yeah. Uh, I feel like it's, it's somehow related to what you were discussing before. Uh, Supreme Court's discretionary, discretionary uh, choice of law, I'd say. Uh, I hope not running ahead or falling behind the discussion, but I was wondering what's the, what's the tension between court, Supreme Court sometimes decides to take the matters in its own hands, as it did in the inside case, to order the minister to do what is in yeah. his uh, discretion. And uh, other occasions, not doing so as they did not do it in a case. Yeah, that's that is a great point, and that really is like the gist of Friday's lecture. We're going to really delve into that. Um, 
So let's let's get back into. Okay, so you you have the you have a client who says, "I understand the risk. I know that if I go to judicial review, ah, shoot, oh good, if I go to judicial review." I may get, I may win on judicial review and then go back to the tribunal and get the exact same order over again, but I want to do it anyways. First thing that you need to consider then is, okay, while my judicial review is pending, is this decision going to be enforced anyways and make the whole thing moot? And if you're worried about that, you might have to get a stay of proceedings pending the judicial review. A stay of proceedings, I'm sure you've, you've looked at this before, but it's a remedy where the court stops the enforcement of an order or a decision pending review of that order or decision on the basis, of course, that if we enforce this decision, then my review will become moot. So if you get evicted, you go to the RTB, they say the eviction stands, you want to go to judicial review. Well, you better get a stay of that eviction, otherwise you're going to be kicked out while your judicial review is pending, the place will be re-rented, and you'll be left without an effective remedy. Some statutes provide automatic stays. That's very rare. Usually you have to go get a stay. That said, they're almost always granted when the matter, the judicial review, would be rendered moot if it wasn't granted. And usually the tribunal will just consent to the stay. They'll say, we're not going to enforce our order until this is decided. But if not, you need to be ready to go to court and go to court quickly and argue that you deserve a stay. We won't get deep into this, but the test for a stay is the same effectively as the test for an injunction, the RJR McDonald test, which I'm sure you've talked about. And it comes down to irreparable harm in most cases, but you also need to show an arguable case on the merits. Within the judicial review context, it's very rare you don't have at least an arguable case, but you have to try. You have to say there's some problem here that could fall within the scope of what might be overturned, even given the significant deference that might be afforded this decision. It's not going to be an exacting look, but you better try. So. Getting a stay is practically really important and can be quite a rush thing. You know, you may need to do a short notice application and bring, go get a stay um, you know, in, a, in a matter of, of days if you want to avoid uh, order being acted upon and your client being left purely without a remedy. So you know, I, I made a pitch for judicial review as, in practice, a very uh, nice way to practice because you're getting these cases that are coming in that are somewhat manageable chunks, you get the record given to you, you know, you're going to arguing about the law, not bickering over documents. 
But one of the parts of judicial review practice that can be more stressful and can require, um, you know, some sometimes late nights and, and uh, you know, flurry uh, is if you need to get a stay. That can be an area that's a little bit more um, akin to ordinary litigation in its tight deadlines. All right. Um, the next thing I want to talk about, and this is an interesting point is the discretionary nature of remedies on judicial review. So if you go to court and you say, look, you need to set aside this administrative decision, it's outside of jurisdiction, you are participating in a tradition that dates back to the courts of chancery, the equitable courts. This is a power that finds its roots in equity, and because it finds its roots in equity, it's discretionary. Has anybody here taken equitable remedies? It's a pretty good course. Is Tony Shepard still teaching here? Did he retire? No, 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 that's too bad. He was great. Um, his office was the funniest thing you've ever seen because he just, Every time he read a piece of paper, he just threw it in the ground. And there's these piles that would like, they would slowly, like softly undulate. <laughs> it was art, it was amazing. Um, I'm sad to hear he's not around anymore and you won't take equitable remedies from him. But it's a, it's a very good course and it's a very good area to think about if you're at all interested in administrative law or really lots of different areas. Equity is, is can get you the best damages, it can get you, you know, injunctions, it can deal with these, with these um, administrative problems. So equity is a, a fantastic area to study. So because your roots are in equity, you have this discretionary component where the courts are going to say, you have to first convince me that your entitlement, you're entitled to a remedy, that there's a wrong that can be remedied here. And second, you have to entitle me that I should step in. I should intervene in this. And when is a court going to say, I'm going to not intervene? The book identifies five situations. And you want to have these in mind before you rush off to judicial review. Are you going to run into a problem? Or even if you could show that there was something that was done that was outside of jurisdiction, the court's going to say, we're not going to intervene here. The first one is, I mentioned earlier, the adequate alternative remedies. You go to court and say, workers' compensation board, they're crazy, look what they did. The court says, did you go to workers' compensation appeal tribunal? Did you go to WCAT? Did you go to that internal remedy? They're gonna say no. They're gonna say, get out of here. Right, that's our adequate alternative remedy. And here's like a practice tip, is never underestimate the power of an argument to a judge you don't have to decide this. This is not your problem. This is somebody else's problem. Those arguments are very well received by the courts. The second one, premature. The court will say, hey, maybe there's an issue here, but let's let it play out. Come back to me uh, at a later time. And where you see this most notably is, let's say there is an uh, interim decision or a decision along the way to a final decision that you really don't like. 
the court may say, look, I get it, but it's premature to decide if um, to decide that issue now. Again, this can be not my problem today. It's kind of the gist of what they're saying. I'll give you an example though, because this this can be quite frustrating and can really matter. Um, so we've been thinking today, a lot of my examples have been in the residential tenancy context, but if we go think really big, big stakes, big picture, let's think National Energy Board, Canada Energy Regulators, the, the, new, in, the new iteration of that, so I'll call it the Canada Energy Regulator. Pipelines, um, reviewing a pipeline decision, or sorry, reviewing a pipeline uh, application for uh, an authorization. As a component of that review, they do what's called an environmental assessment. You take an environmental law? Yeah. So environmental assessment is obviously a, um, a very detailed look at the impacts of a project on the environment. They can be costly and time consuming. And you know, one of the most important decisions in an environmental assessment is made right at the outset when you scope what's in and out of the environmental assessment. So for example, Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, the scoping decision is made at the outset, and they say, we're not gonna consider greenhouse gas emissions. We're not gonna consider the greenhouse gas emissions that are gonna increase from the um, increased oil sands development that is anticipated if this pipeline is built. That's outside the scope of what we're gonna review. They also say we're not going to scope the increase in marine shipping. Um, you know, the, pipe, the oil is basically going from Edmonton to Burnaby to go into tankers to be shipped off to refineries, mostly in Asia. Uh, and they say the marine shipping component is not going to be within the scope of the environmental assessment. The opponents of the pipeline. These are huge losses for them, right? And you've gotten off on the wrong foot. These, these big issues are not within the scope of, the, of what's being reviewed. So you want to go to the court and say, hey, fix it, scope it properly. But what argument are you gonna be faced with? Premature. That's an interim decision on scoping. Come back to me when they make their final decision. Because of course, what's one possibility with that final decision? It's not going to get approved, right? But it's not going to get approved anyways. You don't need me to intervene in this preliminary scoping exercise. But what's the downside? If you get off on the wrong foot at the outset, this huge lengthy proceeding all becomes for naught, or a big chunk of it becomes for naught. And indeed, that is what happened on the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. When it went to the Court of Appeal, ultimately after the final decision to approve the pipeline, the court said, hold on, you didn't scope in marine shipping. That should have been within the scope of the environmental assessment. Go do it again. So, you know, the premature ground for not granting judicial review, not considering judicial review, um, is a, one of the things you need to know. But you want to have in mind that tension between, you know, if you, you don't want to, unnecessarily get involved as the court in judicial review processes that are sorry in administrative processes that are ongoing 
But at the same time, if you're too hesitant to get involved, you can sometimes let a tribunal go merrily along its way, let everyone spend a whole lot of money only to come in later and say, oh, the whole thing from start was a mess. So it's a, there's a balance there in the premature ground. But I'm, there's a bit of a, I got off, got off on that one a bit. But let's get back into, I'm going through these five grounds why you would refuse to exercise your discretion. You said adequate alternative remedies and premature is the second one. The third one is delay or acquiescence. And that's a uh, fundamentally a, an equitable principle that equity won't come to the aid of somebody who doesn't act with appropriate dispatch, who doesn't act quickly to seek their remedy. They don't want you waiting and waiting and waiting, letting the other side think this, the status quo is going to prevail and then saying, aha, I need help from the courts. They say, if you're going to ask me for help to exercise this sort of outstanding or uh, extraordinary uh, equitable jurisdiction to supervise the executive, do it quickly. That is fundamentally what they say. Um, a fourth one is that the matter can become moot. Uh, the, the administrative decision process is just no longer something that affects your rights for whatever reason. And so the court may say there may have been a legal error that I could opine upon that happened within this process, but I'm not going to bother to do so. And there's the ordinary arguments for and against mootness, which you probably have come up against in other contexts. But you know, sometimes you could say, well, this is a systemic problem that keeps happening. We need the courts to give us guidance. These types of things can sometimes overcome the mootness argument. And the final one is everyone's favorite equitable issue, clean hands. Uh, have you heard this before? This is where you get to, like, it's so annoying when you are facing these arguments as everyone's pointing their fingers at each other. You're the worst. You're the worst. Um, so clean hands is the idea that equity won't aid somebody who has not acted honorably in relation to this dispute. So it's not enough just to say, hey, this person stinks. They're a horrible person. Rather, what it requires is you to show in relation to this very dispute, this very relief that's being sought, this other side has not acted with appropriate honor or they've not acted in a in an appropriate way that would entitle them to come to this court and demand you to get involved. So yeah, I had a, um, a case recently where I was seeking judicial review in the context of a dispute between three counselors on an uh, Aboriginal band as against the other two counselors and the chief who were totally locked in their, um, their governance. And you know, I was on the side of the three counselors who said, we need to get band council meetings going again. You've just been absolutely flaunting your, your code that sets out the rules for this. You've got to follow it. The other side's whole argument was, you know, your clients are the worst. They're not, they, you know, they didn't want to come to this meeting. They tried to remove me as chief, but it was found to be improperly done. And so, you know, there's a, there's a balance here. Like how much do, am I there to defend my clients and distract from the actual issue at hand, which is, you know, are they following this code? But if I don't do that, I'm going to face this potential that they're going to say, you don't have clean hands, I'm not going to come to your aid. 
So these arguments come up over and over again. Um, you know, I'm raising one right now in relation to uh, it's sort of outside the administrative context a bit, but in relation to the Site C court case I'm working on, uh, the government has said that we're not the, the nation is not entitled to equitable relief, a um, an injunction because of latches, which is effectively equitable limitation periods. It means you've waited too long to seek this relief, and. You know, what can you say in response to that about uh, a nation not having brought a claim in relation to a historical dam that was, you know, constructed in the, uh, in the 60s? So you can say, well, you had a little bit to do, Canada, <laughs> with this ban's inability to, to advocate for its legal rights. You know, the Indian Act, residential schools, et cetera, et cetera, all uh, make it pretty fresh of you to say, you've waited too long to assert this as against us when your explicit policy was to make it difficult for Aboriginal bands to express their rights in court. So there's, these ideas come up over and over again, but you want to just have in mind that equity uh, is discretionary. There are these five reasons that equitable relief may not be granted in various cases. These apply in the administrative context, and you want to be aware of them and be ready to uh, advise your client of the risk that you might not get a, a relief if one of these things is in, uh, is in play. And you also want to be ready to make the arguments to put yourself forward to counter those suggestions you're not intent to equitable relief. So I didn't quite get through the lecture today, uh, but that's fine because our readings are relatively light for Friday. Um, but I will finish up on the chapter on remedies, and then we'll get into the cases. And I also want to show you some of the submissions from one of the cases we're gonna read on the issues that we're talking about, which I hope will be you know, interesting and, and kind of fun. Um, so thank you very much, and we'll, uh, we'll see you Friday.